Uh, the new public health order that we're announcing will require San Franciscans to remain at home with exceptions only for essential outings. These measures will be disruptive to day-to-day -day life, but there is no need to panic. Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips. I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang. And in light of everything happening in the world right now, this episode is going to be different. We're recording this remotely as the entire San Francisco Bay Area is under a shelter-in-place order from the mayor. She ordered everyone to essentially remain in their homes until April 7th with uh, certain exceptions. We opened up the podcast that was Mayor London Breed of San Francisco announcing this new public health order calling for the shutdown. As we're all experiencing, life as we know it has been completely upended across the country and really around the world. And, you know, it's a disorienting and, and scary time, frankly. And it's, it's, it's also really hard to get good information. In many ways, there's actually almost too much information out there. And also, it's easy to get cut off from people, which really makes it all the more important that we're using this platform, this podcast, to try to inform and connect. So this episode is going to be different. Uh, first of all, we're not in the studio. We're recording remotely, so the sound quality probably isn't going to be as good. And in terms of our focus, we're going to largely talk more about the coronavirus, how it's affecting us, and where we think things are going. And we'll have some political update as well. And we're going to start with talking about the threat that's in front of us. And we'll be joined by a couple of guests who can help us make sense of what's happening. And so with that, let's get started. Charlene, I'm really glad that we're going to have this conversation. And before we introduce our guests, how are you and your family holding up? Hey, Steve. I'm holding up pretty well overall. You should see my really cool studio that I've designed for myself here at home. Got my pillows around. Just wanted to make sure the sound is as good as possible blankets. But thanks for asking. I am just like everybody else trying to stay as calm as possible and using this moment as a way to just really learn to be present and in the moment, try not to consume too much news. I'm actually trying to stay away from social media because I was really in it. And then I thought, okay, it's getting to be like a little bit much. So trying to enjoy that this is a change of pace. And my daughter, like many students, kids around the country, her school has closed for the next three weeks. So that's a big change. And what I'm hearing is most likely it'll be even longer. So my husband and I, we both work, we're working at home, we're juggling work and keeping her busy, trying the thing that some parents are trying to do is this homeschool thing, trying to figure out that. And by the way, my daughter is really interested in animals. So we found a really cool video on wombats and civets. We're getting to learn about interesting animals. And yeah, it's just been a big change. Uh, she's been a trooper. And I feel like, you know, Steve, I feel like my big takeaway that I want to share is even though it's just actually been just the past few days where the reality of these big changes has really hit us and we are really making these big changes of staying home as much as possible or um, social distancing and not really going out, I feel like it has really helped me get a very clear on how privileged I am and how privileged my family is. And anytime I kind of feel I'm complaining inside about anything, I just say, you know what, reality check. I'm very aware of how fortunate we are. Yeah, a reality check is definitely the, the 
phrase of the moment, so putting lots of things in perspective. So, yeah, so we should talk about that a bit more, but why don't we bring in our guests for this episode? So do you want to introduce them? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's great when we're able to tap the experience and expertise of the people in our network. And that's what we're going to do today in this episode. So joining us today is Stephanie Douglas. Stephanie is a human resources expert with 25 years of experience in the field. And currently she's the VP of People, really cool title. And I think that means HR essentially, but we can <laughs> find out from her at a company named Vungle. And Vungle is an international company with offices all over the world, including in China. So in that capacity, Stephanie and her company have been dealing with the coronavirus since last year. And we are going to hear from her about her and her company's experience uh, and what that can offer us in terms of insight into how this crisis could play out and also what she saw that they did differently there. And we know she's been super busy dealing with this, especially since it's ongoing in different offices of her company around the world. So we're very grateful that she has made time to join us. So thank you for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really glad to be here. Well, we appreciate Steph. I know that Stephanie is an international company because we're marathon training buddies and we run every week. And yet literally every other week, she's in a different country around the world. So that's more how I've experienced it. And then I began to talk obviously about this coronavirus and then we saw how she had a lot of experience actually dealing with this ahead of everybody else. And I was like, well, that would be great if you could come on and share with us. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. And also later, just so I could chime in real quickly, we're going to be joined by a familiar guest of our show, a real regular, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega. And we usually have Julie come on to talk about data as it applies to politics. But today, we're going to use her doctor title, which is actually a PhD in social policy. And I was just reminded, I did know this at one point, I kind of forgot, but I've just been reminded that she is actually an expert on healthcare policy because that's her specialty. And she had worked at the Department of Health and Human Services under Clinton. And I wanted to welcome her. Hi, Julie. Hi, y'all. What a crazy time this is, huh? Yeah. Just as we were saying a few weeks ago, we thought it was crazy just politically, but it just kind of turned sideways is what I keep thinking about, got crazier. And uh, like I've been saying to a lot of people, you can't make this up. Pretty surreal. So I wanted to check in with you as well, Julie. How are you doing with this? How's your family and how are you guys adapting? Well, we're struggling to keep my elderly parents in the house because uh, as many people have been discussing, you know, the queen agers don't always want to follow the rules. And over here, we've already run out of our supply of Lucky Charms. So that's a problem. I, I didn't plan uh, well enough. And mostly I've just been distracting myself with trying out new recipes and trying to, like you, tamp down my watching of the news and try to just check in maybe once or twice a day instead of having it running constantly because I found that was just really not a good vibe. Yeah, great. And Stephanie, I also wanted to ask you, how are you holding up and how are you doing? I'm, you know, I'm good. It's, it's such a crazy time. You mentioned uh, really, really understanding your privilege in a time like this. And it is, it's incredible. I mean, we live in a place where we can work at home. And for some of us, I mean, my workload's gone up, not down. And I have to stay off social media because I keep seeing all these people who are crafting and things. I'm like, well, I'm not crafting. I'm just working a lot. <laughs> I feel like I should be crafting. Um, but the fact that we have access to 
groceries and delivery and working remotely and community that goes beyond that in-person community, though I miss that a lot, <laughs> uh, is, is incredible. So I try to make sure that you know, I remember that I'm privileged and the people that I'm around are really privileged and try to think and what we can do outside of our communities right now because there are communities that are really suffering. That's absolutely true. Thanks. Thanks for reminding us that. And I have been thinking that for those of us who are extroverts, it seems to be much harder, but introverts might be like, well, this is kind of nice. <laughs> um, Steve, I, speaking of people who might be, tend to be more introverted, you said on one of your calls lately with us that you were watching a lot of Home and Garden Channel and enjoying that. Yeah, to your point, on introvert, some, somebody put on Facebook, as an introvert, all you extroverts are messing with us with your wanting to connect via Zoom and all these <laughs> FaceTime and whatnot. So, but no, it's it's been. I think you know, surreal probably is the best word, right? Because almost with that thing dystopian to a certain extent. And then, so like intellectually, I kind of knew that I was you know fine and adjusting. So we're gonna do these pieces and do the social distancing, and I had mastered the art of social distancing within the cafe, make sure we're all six feet apart from each other. But you know, but it was more intellectual. And then frankly, it was when they had the press conference with, you know, Mayor Breed and all of the six or seven Bay Area County top officials. It just really drove home the seriousness of it all to me in a different level. And, and it just, it is very sobering. And so I've been trying to grapple with that. Um, and then get the balance, right? I could already only take so much of the, Rachel Maddow will go down a gloom and doom, how terrible everything is for a full hour in ways that are sometimes difficult to handle, but then you throw on top of that a global pandemic. And so trying to get the balance of good information, not being overly triggered by this man and the team in the White House, and then just being able to balance, right? So I have been, you know, I, I turned off the presidential debate and I was watching House Hunters International. Right. And then somebody texted me, I think it was you, Charlie, texted me saying, you know, Biden said he was going to get a war. I said, oh, let me go back and look at the debate. But trying to strike that balance because it is very disorienting. And then I think being in San Francisco and the Bay Area, where this is, I think, the most extreme steps they've taken in terms of the sheltering at home piece. So trying to do the balance, but part of that balance is doing this podcast. That's definitely true. And I can't help but have to remind you that at the beginning of this year you said we checked in with each other what our new year's resolutions were going to be you said meditation so no better time than the present to start no excuse to now right <laughs> i say that to myself easier said than done because that's one of my goals too so part of yeah what i would say like what to the point you were making is what i feel is definitely disconcerting shall we say about this situation is just how much is unknown and then I kind of keep thinking as the double whammy, the perfect storm, is that we have also currently at the same time, the, one of the most, if not the most incompetent and narcissistic president who just keeps pushing out wrong information and seems mainly interested in just preserving his own interests. And meanwhile, around the world, however, you know, there is thankfully actual lived experience that we are able to learn from and can give us insight into what's both likely to come and what we can do to help s slow things down. And that's why we really wanted Stephanie to join us for this conversation today. We'd like to spend a little time talking about how this has all played out in China and what we can learn from that experience. So Stephanie, can you share with us how the coronavirus first came onto your radar? Yeah, and let me um, 
let your listeners know that I am talking from a place where I have offices in Beijing specifically. And since things came out at different times um, in different regions, I want to make sure that they know that the timeline I'm talking about uh, is for Beijing offices. So for me, we certainly had started to hear about a virus that was happening in the Wuhan area in late December, early January timeframe. But when it became really something that we were paying a lot of attention to was in probably the third week of January, where kind of the alarm bells were going off and things were spreading and uh, the cases were going up and the government was going to start taking more drastic measures. Now, things were already happening in in that region, but again, we have Beijing office. And we were paying attention to greater China because obviously people have family that live all over. But what was really interesting on the timing and and concerning is that we were getting ready for people to uh, celebrate Golden Week. And so why this is important is this is a time where hundreds of millions of Chinese people travel in in China. And a lot of that travel is people coming from the larger cities uh, where they're working and going out to the countryside where families are from. This is, it's hard to explain how really important this is to the people who are there and what a big deal it is. Business really shuts down during that period for a lot of us. And we're here, you know, people are still answering texts at Christmas time or whatever the heck's going on here. It's different. It's treated differently and it's honored differently. So to ask people to not move about the country at a time when it's so deeply culturally embedded and important to them is unfortunate timing. So people were going out for this spring festival and what the government did and what we were instructed in Beijing is, listen, we'd like people to not travel so much. Uh, There were certain bans in certain areas, but generally we'd like people to not travel so much. But if you are coming back from spring holiday, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to ask people who've been outside of the Beijing area to shelter at home for 14 days. And we kind of looked at that recommendation and thought, huh, <laughs> that's, that's pretty serious. And especially coming from our Western culture where people do whatever the heck they want. But uh, there, people do take it very seriously. And the way that it is presented is this is for the health and safety of community. And I would say that that filter of community is, it's strong, it's always messaged and something that Perhaps we're hearing now here, but it isn't as typical for us to, to think about community that way, especially around health issues. That's right. And yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but you really hit upon that. And so I wanted to ask you real quickly, how did your company respond and was this new for your company? So my, uh, I think it's new for everybody. <laughs> um, you know, I've worked in different companies dealing with different crisis We've had a bunch of it in the last couple decades, but this was new for us. Now, getting direction from the government in China to do certain things or something, that's not uncomfortable or unusual. So we looked at the ban and we decided, listen, to be extra safe, this is feeling a little scary. People are anxious. We're going to, of course, follow the Chinese government announcement that the spring festival would be extended. So that's how they handled it. They said, listen, we're going to extend Spring Festival. And Spring Festival is what I was talking about, where everyone is closed down. And I just wanted to, for some people who might not know Spring Festival, there's lots of names for it. Also, people know it as Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year. Or Golden Um, Week. Yeah. I never heard of the Golden Week in Chinese, but I... (laughs) Oh, okay. I was assuming that that's what it meant. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it gave people a sense of, okay, 
I'm going to get more later of, out of my holiday. Yeah. So they said, come back, take more time. And then, you know, they're saying again, if people had been away from Beijing specifically, I'm talking about what was going on there, then we'd like people to, to stay out even longer. So we looked at that and they said, and decided as a company, we wanted to make it easy. And we just kept everybody out for that extended period. So through, through February 10th to start. And we said, listen, it's safer for us if people are staying home. And, and, and being American, we're like, what if people don't stay at home and then it spreads? We better make our people stay at home. What I, of course, underestimated is that um, the citizens there took it very seriously and did stay at home. And as we saw it start to spread and the government then was asking people who could stay at home to extend those periods, we just basically had people stay at home. Um, we knew where everyone had been traveling. That's very common. And the government knows where people are, you know, kind of moving about the country and had been watching that. But what we found is as the crisis increased and the stress level went up, it was easier for us to just tell our people, don't worry about coming back for now. And we'll extend week by week and we'll at least follow the governmental recommendations. But we're in a position again where we can do more. And where do things stand now? Do you know? Yeah, um, people can be back at work. And what was really interesting is the government was watching specifically for, there's, there's more cases, right? So the cases go up, but they were looking for the cases to not be going up at the same rate they'd been going up. So you have an increase in cases, but not an increase in the rapidness of increase of cases, if that makes sense. Actually, you're going to have someone who's in healthcare on next, so I bet she'll say that a lot better than I just did. Greg, how, how long did that go on? So the government came out with this piece, you had people stay at home. How long were they at home? That was mid, I mean, the, they issued the um, announcement in third week of January. So this is a long time, right? This is a long time, oh. it's third, third week of January. So we're, what, seven or eight weeks in at this point. And then it was the week of February 20th, I believe, that they started to, in Beijing, encourage people who to come back. I and mean, there are always some people working, right, to make sure that things are functioning. But being sequestered there is very different than here. People that work for me, I have people who have not left their apartments, literally have not left their apartments in seven weeks. Wow. And they live in small spaces. And um, wow. they... I, I hate to use the word obedience because that sounds awful, but there's a there's an honoring. That's a better way to say it. They honor that they need to do the right thing to keep people safe. Now, people can return to work now, not in our company because I've asked people to stay home a little bit longer if they can. But if people are cleared to go back and in a region where they can go back, and we've got people in Beijing who have gone back, not in our company, they can, but there's a lot of rules around that. So you can't lunch together. So I've got pictures of how people have set up the offices so people are sitting separately for lunching. You can only have so many people per square foot. So for us, we have what would be considered quite luxurious offices. Um, we're a cool American tech company. Probably have about 45 people in the office. But with our current floor plan, we could have closer to 20 come back on any given day. So they want to make sure that there's still this social distancing even in this very compact city with, you know, lots of people crammed into small spaces. So they're taking it very seriously. Um, what I want to do is just wait a little bit longer with our teams because I assume as people come back, there might be a little bit of an uptick in cases. 
So you have not brought people back into your offices then yet. Is that right? No. And, you know, I, I grew up with a, around a lot of medical people and I'm probably a little bit more, uh, and I read a lot of books on pandemics. So I'm probably a little bit more cautious and we're a little more cautious with our people. But I'd also say we have the privilege and luxury to keep people home. They can work at home. They have access to what they need there. And I'd rather keep them safe at home. And that's been about two months then that they've that you've had them working yeah. from home. Yeah, and that's hard on them. I will tell you, talking to them and the teams around the world have done a good job of being in touch with people and calling people and having virtual happy hours and virtual lunches. And they did something they called an animal party where everyone brought their pets to their virtual lunch, which was hilarious um, and, and sweet. Um, but people are lonely and that is tough. You get on the phone and they do look weary and tired. But what's different about what I see there is they look weary and tired, but truly believe they're doing the right thing. I would say here we've got people who've been home for a few days, and I'm no exception, and it's driving me a little crazy. People are very quick to complain, and they can't do this, and how are they going to survive another week of this? And that's really not what, what I hear from the teams there. They're going to wait till it's the right time to come back. So they got late January, the government... It basically instituted the, I don't know to call it quarantine, but they took their measures. Yes. And that, that was about a month before then they said people could start coming back. Is that accurate? Um, yeah, I guess that's about right. Yeah. And again, because we weren't returning our people, we weren't paying close attention to that because we don't have to return them. But yeah, they extended no. that time period from Golden Week and then people were starting to come back the week of the 20th. But they encourage you, if you don't have to bring your people back, don't. Um, mm -hmm. So they've been great about that. They've been clear about the space that people need. Right. And they did not, they did not have national leadership saying, oh, it's nothing. It was fine. Whatever. Right. So. I'll tell you that that's an interesting thing, too. I mean, we're living in a different place, right? So if we're in San Francisco, we've got Mayor Breed, who took quick action, better action than a lot of the, the country. We've got Gavin Newsom, who cares about these things and is you know, wanting people to be careful. So we have a different experience than other people in the rest of this country. But there in China, you know, they almost have a consistent experience. And that's kind of an interesting thing to think of a consistent experience. And yeah, they take it very seriously. And I, because people might find this interesting, or you might find this interesting, it, we are headquartered in San Francisco, and we're doing uh, a bunch of charitable things for, for people who aren't as privileged as us here in San Francisco and London. Um, but we started by looking at what could we do in China. And so I had reached out to my head of HR in China, and I said, listen, you know, we're looking at food delivery to support small restaurants and to feed the elderly and people who don't have access. I want to do that in China. So make that happen because I like to have people make things happen. Oh. And Yinjing got back to me and said, she sent a bunch of stuff and we were kind of having this, this miscommunication, which happens. And finally I got on the hangout with her and I said, Yinjing, I don't understand why we can't just get this done. I want this done. I want to get charitable food donations out. And she said, you're not hearing me. The government's taking care of this, Stephanie. <laughs> so oh. there was that really big disconnect of me yeah. thinking we better fix something and her saying, yeah, that's not what we need right now because yeah. these people are being fed, being taken care of. Yeah. Wow. Great. All right. Well, thanks, Steph, for sharing that with us and taking and thank the time. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Uh, thank you so much for having right. me. Well, Charlie, I know that obviously your family, you know, originates, you know, from China and Taiwan and that it does seem like the cultural realities and specificity of those places has had a, a bit important component of why they've been able to respond more quickly so can you share with us some of your reflections around 
how the Chinese and Taiwanese cultural responses have played into all of this. Yeah, and I'll definitely, uh, I have a lot to say, and I'll try to be as brief as possible, but it's really been on my mind. Uh, and it's been an interesting time for me because I am of these two cultures. I'm definitely very, very American, but um, being raised by immigrants who were born in China, raised in Taiwan, and grew up in Taiwan, I'm also of that culture too. And I've, I've lived in China. I lived in Beijing also in the late 90s and born and raised here in the U.S. But as a child for one year, my parents had me live in Taiwan to learn the language and be my, with my relatives. So I've lived in both societies. And I, I remember distinctively when the news about the coronavirus came out around Chinese New Year. And it was around the end of January, which seems both very long ago, but not that long ago. And I thought, I feel really sad for the people of China. I'm worried about my relatives there. I'm a little worried about my relatives in Taiwan because it's so close. But I had this very, now, you know, looking back, American mentality. And I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but I know I'm not alone, which is that I really was quite cavalier and thought, well, I don't think I need to worry about anything for myself. Because when I think back to, for example, SARS was an epidemic that happened 17 years ago in Asia. It did spread to other countries, but the vast majority were in Asia and it was contained globally within nine months. And so my mind was still going to a place of this is going to be contained and not affect me. And it's a very kind of privileged, arrogant like, kind of point of view that's so American, I feel, that these kind of things happen to mostly to other people in other countries. They don't become issues for us. And it's just very naive and ignorant. And the reason why I bring it up is because I know I'm not alone and it is what got us in trouble nationally. And even I think it's the mindset of our government, you know, uh, from the top down, then, then you add on top of the fact that politically we are a very different society. And again, I think Stephanie had pointed to this culturally as Americans, we just are very wedded to and hardwired to believe that we have a right to exercise our individual freedoms. It's like what we pride ourselves on. So we have this hard baked into our beliefs, the pursuit of happiness. And so people are very reluctant and are not used to having to giving up personal freedom on a mass scale and are not used to having to do it very quickly. Whereas what you had heard from Stephanie is the minute the order came from the government, this has happened, A, because they've been through it, people were immediately responsive in China uh, and other parts of Asia and just like, okay, we're going to do whatever it takes. Right. And we have zero experience as a country with this. Um, whereas in China and Taiwan, they had the experience. So they've had uh, systems in place. They have better technology as it turns out. And they had a great sense of urgency from the very top down. And there's definitely two sides of this, especially in a political system like China, where people know they don't also have much of a choice. So even if you don't agree, if you don't follow, you know, there's repercussions. Whereas here right now, people are still kind of like, well, what's the most they're going to do? Like even in places where shelter in place, like, am I really going to get fined if I break this order? There's a, just, we just have more of that like cowboy, cowgirl attitude that's, I think, part of our culture. Also in parts of right. Asia, uh, peer policing is more acceptable. It's just part of the history of places. I've been also very struck by, so I just want to offer some stats, like a place like Taiwan, even though it's small, it's very densely populated. They've only had 77 recorded cases of the virus and only one death this whole time. Singapore is another place that had really shut down and done some amazing work around it quickly. They've had 226 cases and zero fatalities. Um, so I think there's a lot to be learned there. And I hope that this experience will make our country better prepared 
for something like right. this time and really examine. Yeah, well, it, it also it highlights the absurdity of the racism, right? And so, oh it, god, it, don't it, even get me started. Oh, Steve, of the xenophobia, but they're trying to say, oh, it's the Chinese, <laughs> the Chinese flu, and it, and Trump even calling it oh, the China piece. Mm-hmm. If somehow we're that, so careless and dirty, right? Say, right. Point of fact, the Chinese are light years ahead of us in terms of how to handle a situation like this. And so it just really shows there's that, you know, it might be one thing if we were actually smarter and better in this country to try to be racist, but when we're actually dumber and slower and they're actually moving much quicker and more effectively. So a lot to happen. Yeah, it's uh, definitely given me some sense of satisfaction that it started off with a lot of like side eye hating and judging the Chinese. And now it's like, Oh my gosh, we have to learn from the Chinese. So I'm like, yeah, that's right. So yeah, lots of important, you know, lessons and really good to had a chance to talk to Stephanie about especially things like flattening the curve. That's a phrase that we've been hearing a lot about and that comes along with social distancing. And so let's try to really understand that by talking to Julie and have her give us a, kind of understanding what flattening the curve means. Yeah, and then before you get into that, Julie, I just wanted to frame up for people that this is, it's, I mean, we have these conversations that we're talking here about like data, statistics, et cetera, but I don't have ever seen a situation where you have a mass public response, really in effect shutting down much of the sectors of various parts of our society, all driven off of statistics. And it's really looking at actual statistics, statistics modeling, statistics projections, resulting in this massive response. And so I think it really is important for us to try to understand what and why they're significant. So with that, Julie, can you try to give us an explanation around uh, flattening the curve and what it actually is? Sure. And I'll try my best to keep it short and simple. Yes, there was, uh, was it uh, the movie Philadelphia that Denzel Washington was the lawyer in, and he kept saying different points, Start off saying, "Explain to me like I'm a seven-year-old," and later on, "Explain to me like I'm a five-year-old." So, can you try to explain it to us in a very? <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay. All right. So, people have probably seen that graph that's going around. It's got two curves on it. President Obama tweeted it out a couple of weeks ago, and it's really just been everywhere on on social media. So, the message behind the graph is really that the total number of infected people isn't our main problem. Rather, it's how many people are all infected and sick at the same time, okay? And therefore, out of that graph is the idea that we want to spread out the number of the cases of seriously sick people over time. Now, what the graph is showing us is the number of people who are infected with the virus in the U.S. at any one point in time. And the first line on it shows us this very steep rise in the number of people who have been infected and are currently sick. And it looks like a really steep curve going up because the number of new infections happens very quickly in that scenario. And it later drops down over time as those people recover or sadly might pass away. So basically this is a curve that has the shape of a really steep mountain and you climb up one steep side of it and then climb back down on the other steep side. So the other line, which is that flatter line that you see off to the right in the graph, that one doesn't go up as high, right? It sort of tops off at a certain kind of midpoint on the graph. And that's because it doesn't have those huge spikes of the massive numbers of people that are all getting infected and sick at the same time. So in this line, you might end up having actually the same number of people that get sick in total as in the first curve line, 
but in this one, they get sick over a longer period of time. And so as a result, they aren't all in need of a nurse or a ventilator at that same moment. And therefore, all these um, numbers of cases don't exceed the number of beds and ventilators, right? Which is the goal, right? We, we have somewhat fixed at this point, number of hospital beds, number of MDs, number of nurses, ventilators, equipment. And so we don't want to exceed the current capacity. We're obviously going to do what we can to increase those numbers, but you know, some of these are not really that movable. You can't create new doctors out of thin air. So in a nutshell, flattening the curve means keeping to a smaller number, the number of people who are sick from the infection at any one point in time. And we do this, we flatten that curve by one, doing things that lower the likelihood of infection. So that's stuff like washing your hands and sneezing or coughing into your elbow. And two, by decreasing the number of exposures we have to it. And we do this by avoiding physical contact with other people. So keeping that six feet of distance between us and others. The people probably have seen this curve, but we will we'll link to it in the show notes as well, because it's really become a central part of our whole national conversation right now. So I think you touched on this a little bit, Julia, but just to heighten the point, why is it so important in terms of, of getting the curve flattened? What are the consequences of it, of it, of having the steep mountain and not the flatter curve? Yeah, I mean, it, bottom line, it's about not overwhelming the current medical system resources that we've got, right? So in the U.S., our medical system, especially our hospitals, right, they run with very little wiggle room for increased capacity. And if you think about it, you know, this is a result of all sorts of issues with the way we've got our healthcare system set up. But basically, hospitals only get paid for the beds, the equipment, and the staff when they're used, right? So the result of that is that they tend to keep their excess supply of those things to a minimum. And that's great for efficiency in a normal time, especially if it's a profit-making hospital and you're a stockholder. Um, but it's highly problematic in a crisis like what we're facing now because that means you don't have this nice surplus of extra beds and equipment and human resources that you could, at a snap of your fingers, put into action. And so just to give you an example of what it could mean if we don't keep ourselves below our capacity level. From a little personal experience here, let's say you were a 15-year-old boy in D.C. named Carlos who's out skateboarding and he breaks his arm and he needs to be seen immediately in the ER. Uh, if that's your situation, then... As it was your situation. <laughs> well, let's just say... Know, it's, it's so funny how she's like... <laughs> For example, and uh, we know that that happened to your Carlos, who's a uh, Mexican Kiwi. Oh, go ahead, please. Exactly. So if that's you, you could end up sitting in and waiting for several hours in an emergency room, right? Even if your arm looks all mangled and even if you're in excruciating pain. And why would that be? It's going to be because, let's hope it's not, but it would be because doctors are busy trying to keep someone else alive who can't breathe because of COVID-19, right? I mean, that's going to take precedence over a broken arm that could wait six, seven hours. Right. The person who can't breathe, they need to be dealt with right then and there, right? Right. Well, let's and, just emphasize yeah. that point. I want to drill on it because part of it is the issue around the numbers of people who are going to be infected with COVID-19. Are they going to be able to be treated? Can the system handle that? But there's also, what Julia's getting at, is that also the system be able to handle everybody else. I've experienced this as well. I've had family members who have been actually quite sick and have needed to be hospitalized. But then you have to wait 
in terms of what to a hospital bed comes available. And yeah. so it's not just the people being to be affected by the coronavirus, but everybody else who's going to need medical care, are they going to be able to be even have you know, access to the emergency rooms, to the doctors, to the hospitals, et cetera? That's another consequence of the curve being so high. Yep, yep. No, like I said, we already have somewhat limited resources, right? So we waited about an hour before he actually got triaged and seen and all that and before he got any sort of medication portable thing. So yeah, the basic idea is there's only so many hospital beds and resources in any given state, city, county. You know, a certain percentage of the people who get infected are going to get very sick from the COVID-19, right? Those people are going to need access to a ventilator to help them breathe and other resources that you pretty much can only find in a hospital, right? But some of those people who have the disease might not be able to end up getting the care they need if they don't have, there's not a big enough supply. And that obviously means um, higher death rates that would end up resulting, right? And I've just recently in the past day or so started reading about, it's not just would you die, it's could you have, you know, lifelong damage to your lungs and other aspects of your body? So yeah, the little super healthy skateboarder crew kid might not be able to do crew anymore if he has damaged lungs. So these are a lot of consequences that we want to avoid getting ourselves into. And you just think about, as Steve was saying, all the just normal things that are happening before all of this happened, car crashes, somebody's appendix burst, whatever, there needs to be access for those people to still be able to have the ongoing regular sorts of emergencies addressed by physicians and medical providers. Thanks so much, Julie. So much to think about and lots to watch unfold. And right now what I wanted to do is turn now to talk about how this is playing out in the world of politics, because after all, we are fundamentally a podcast about politics. So, Steve, first, I know that you had some big picture reflections you wanted to share. Yeah, I think just to to that point, and certainly I think in our our next episode, we'll go more deeply into the different political points. I mean, this quite literally (laughs) the existential threat that we're facing. And so we did think it was important to speak to this moment, and hopefully things will be somewhat more stable as we move to the next episode. But in terms of it does bring up all these different thoughts, and frankly, I haven't had a chance to even process all these different things in terms of the implications around politics and public policy in the country, but just lots of different things are being brought up by this moment, right? The fragility of our democracy, all these different primary elections being postponed, would they try to postpone the election in the fall? What do we need to do in that regard? And a more hopeful note, actually, is the relative strength of different parts of our country, right? And this has been a case study in incompetence and arrogance from the White House. But cities, states, even different activists and companies, different people have different parts of our society have responded in a much more effective fashion. As we talked, we touched on before, the persistence and the, of racism, xenophobia, inequality in all of these different situations, even in the face of a pandemic, found economic impact. Everybody's focused on the stock market, and I'm focused. I'm looking at that stock market numbers, but the real impact in people's lives who are live paycheck to paycheck, who people are going to lose jobs. We don't even know what that's going to look like. So there's all of this different dimensions to this crisis that we're in. I think we're literally in, you know, this uncharted territory and things are moving so fast, right, that it is hard to make meaningful conclusions and insights into it. But in our next episode, we are going to dig more into what are the lessons learned that we've seen, what are the encouraging pieces of what's happening, and where we should be trying to focus our energy and effort as we adjust to this new reality. That's right. 
Thank you so much, Steve, for sharing that perspective. I meant to mention earlier when we were talking about Asia, I wanted to remind people that in those countries like China, Singapore, and Taiwan, they have accessible healthcare. And a lot of their key to success in all this was people were able to get healthcare right away, get testing. And that's just something that I'm hoping that we will wake up and see the importance of having accessible healthcare for all. That's my little plug. So we know that at the same time, all of this is happening in terms of the presidential election and public policies are being passed. So I wanted to bring people up to date on this. Julie, you're in DC, or technically Maryland, but you're in the area. And what is the situation now in terms of federal legislation? I've heard a lot about multiple bills being passed. Just wanted to hear if you can share with us what you are hearing. Yeah, so, I mean, with the caveat that things are moving so quickly that it's, frankly, really hard to keep up. But, you know, and everything could have changed by the time you actually hear this. So there are three pieces of legislation. So on March 6th, Congress passed an $8 billion bill for research and vaccine development. Last week, the House passed an $80 billion, to provide relief, and that includes things like dramatically expanding paid sick leave, free testing for coronavirus, unemployment insurance, among other things. And then as of Wednesday, the 18th today, that bill is still sitting in the Senate awaiting action. And I know there's been a lot of uh, grumbling about getting that passed ASAP. And then also in the Senate, there's coming together now a $1 trillion massive economic stimulus package that may include direct cash payments to people, to individuals at the household level, and a whole bunch of other things that are all very much still in flux. I just checked right before we started recording, and it's still extremely vague how that would even work. The last number I saw was uh, two payments of $1,000 each, but it would somehow be scaled, and it'll depend on household head and children and all that kind of stuff, but it's still very fuzzy and in flux. No final decisions are made, and obviously this is going to require a lot of back and forth with the Republican leaders, some of whom are still grumbling about it. But the growing scale of problem, it's starting to look more and more like we're at at least a $1 trillion kind of rescue plan. So one of the things that's so fascinating about this, particularly after campaign, everyone was savaging and freaking out about potential of having a socialist on the Democratic nominee, is that all these people are now coming to basically a socialist position. In, in terms of we're just going to hand out money to people, literally. And so it's just so fascinating. Um, and frankly, I think underscores the hypocrisy of much of the resistance to public policy. It's not that people are against big government or socialism. It's big government for those people is what they're against. But now that we're all in this together, all of a sudden we can actually do a whole lot more. That's definitely true. And there's also been, on the same time that all this is going on, a presidential race you know, I don't want to skip over that entirely. So real quickly, Steve, where does the race stand? What do we have to say about it right now? Well, basically, it's getting ready for nominee Joe Biden. That's right. So yep. He's won some forecast in our previous uh, episode. So he's won, I think, six states in a row since the last time we recorded. And there's even reports as we're recording this that Sanders' team is going to be assessing his candidacy and should he and can he go forward. So it's essentially all over on the Democratic side. Biden is going to be the nominee. Sanders has stopped running ads on Facebook. So by the time this even goes up, he can even you know, have suspended the campaign. So that's where it stands. And so now we turn towards, well, what does that mean? And the, if that's accepting that reality, what does that mean in terms of engaging with Biden, making him as progressive and effective as possible? 
Um, and so the, the main issue now really is this is going to be the fight around the vice presidency. Right? And then somewhat to his credit, Biden has now formally officially pledged to actually choose a woman as his running mate. And so that is a historic step, although I fear a bit of a misdirection allowed himself to choose a moderate white woman as his nominee. But that's the next progressive fight is to be, to be able to push him to commit to and actually choose a progressive woman of color as his nominee. Yeah, I want to give a plug for some of the work Democracy in Color has been doing to push that message publicly. So Steve, you had an article in The Nation that came out on Monday, and I highly suggest all the listeners to check it out. That piece is by Steve. It's titled, The Vice Presidential Nominee Should Be a Woman of Color. That's in The Nation. And we'll put that article in our show notes. And on Tuesday, Democracy in Color, in partnership with She the People, sent a letter to both the Biden and Sanders campaigns calling for them to make a commitment to select a woman of color as their running mate. Woohoo! And our letter is signed by a number of other groups, including Indivisible, The Collective Pack, and Latino Victory Project. Vanessa Williams of the Washington Post wrote a great article about our letter and our initiative, and that is also an article that we will put the link in our show notes, and we really hope you will all check it out. Yeah, let me just emphasize this point, say it out loud, hopefully together we can make stop this from happening, is that uh, I have this sense of unease around the, because Biden's saying, I'm going to choose a woman, and he's saying, I'm going to choose a black woman for the Supreme Court. And I talk about this in the Nation column, but I am increasingly fearful that there's specificity on one of these points, which is speculative in the future in terms of the Supreme Court, and his lack of specificity on the vice presidential piece is in a I'm fearful that people around him are trying to be too clever by half, try to make some nod to women of color and black women by saying, someday down the road, you might get a Supreme Court justice, but now I'm going to go with Amy Klobuchar. And I'm hearing this buzz that Klobuchar is who people around Biden actually would want to actually have, which would return us to an all-white ticket again, which is strictly mathematically has not, has not worked. But I have a real sense of anxiety around that. And so I think that we have to continue to push this issue out publicly and to try to hold this campaign accountable that the ticket has to reflect the composition of the coalition that we need to win and that it's not going to be acceptable to have uh, a moderate white woman as his nominee. All right, we've covered a lot today and we just want to send to all our listeners our warmest wishes and thoughts and let you all know that we are thinking of you and your families during this time and how much we really appreciate you tuning in and joining us. And all of us here on our team that puts this podcast together, we're working hard to continue to provide you with good content and information. And we know people are looking for that right now. And just want to let you all know that we're thinking of you. And we're all in this together. Steve, anything else you want to share? Yeah, I just wanted to close out, you know, echoing those comments, but also just encourage us all to really kind of take the long view here right? And that this unrelenting nature of the news attached to this crisis can be overwhelming. And we may be uh, and are likely in for even, you know, more bad news. I think it's certainly likely to be a recession, if not an actual full-on depression economically. And so I think it's having to adjust to what does that mean? Like, it reminds me, you know, election night when Trump was winning, I turned to my wife, Susan, I was like, you might actually win. And then she was like, well, this is the period that we're in. Right. And so it's really then trying to step back. So what is that? What does that mean? Take, coming to terms with the reality of what we're facing, but then thinking more broadly. 
And we went through an extraordinarily painful, disruptive, problematic Great Depression in the late 20s. That was followed by the New Deal, which is one of the most sweeping and progressive periods in U.S. history. So if we look back, Obama was elected 12 years ago, but it doesn't, it's hard to believe it was actually that long ago. So if we reflect forward a decade, there are actually a lot of very encouraging, exciting things that are happening that can be the pillars of a new New Deal within this country that rewrites the social contract, takes care of everybody, builds upon the types of connections that we are seeing are necessary through this crisis, universal health care, paid sick leave, taking care of everybody, and all that being rooted really in the concept and a vision of a better society. Right? And it brings to mind to me that one of the phrases people had during the civil rights movement was the idea of a beloved society, where people actually turned to each other, took care of one another, both individually and in terms of our public policy standpoint. And so this crisis is forcing us to turn to each other individually. And I think we wanna really encourage us all to do that and strengthen those bonds and care about one another and it can lay the foundation for us to start to build the kind of society that we all wanna live in, that will be able to meet everybody's needs, survive crises, and help everybody flourish and reach their full potential. Now we can do that work moving forward, and I think we can try to turn this situation ultimately into transformative moment. And so with that, we wanna thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color, at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. Um, as Charlene said, we're going to redouble our efforts to literally be here for you in the coming days and weeks. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the expert assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Be kind to one another, keep your physical distance, but maintain your social connection. And now more than ever, keep the faith.